0: Turn with me in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 this evening. We'll be looking at the first six verses, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and a sermon that I've titled, Remain Calm. Remain Calm. John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 6. This evening, we're going to begin a new area of study. Uh, we. Concluded, at least for right now, study looking at the different parables of Christ. And tonight, I'd like to start a new area of study that I've titled, Finding Peace in the Craziness of Life. Finding Peace in the Craziness of Life. And over the last several years, we have, I think we can all agree that we've seen some extremely significant changes in the world around us. Some of which have hit us a lot closer to home. We're dealing with rising costs at the grocery store and the gas station. We're dealing with health issues that often refuse to let go. We're dealing with financial concerns. uh, A whole host of other problems that could easily lead even the most mature believers into bouts of worry and depression. For some of us, it doesn't take too much to push us to that edge. A calm and and relaxing day can quickly change into a stressful, panic-filled day in a matter of a few moments. And then the rest of the day, we're a shell of ourselves because our minds are completely consumed with worry. Maybe you're here this evening and your life seems to be spinning out of control. Maybe you're here tonight and the ground beneath your feet seems like it's crumbling. Maybe you're here tonight and have gotten little sleep over the last several nights because your mind has been racing nonstop trying to figure out how you're going to fix the problems in your life, how you're going to handle the different circumstances that you're dealing with day after day. Maybe you're here tonight and it's not something major that you're dealing with, but just a small problem, a a recurring little thorn in your side that refuses to go away and refuses to get any better. Regardless of whether our problems are concentrated on physical ailments, on relationships, on finances, on planning for the future, or anything else, the answers we need to remain calm in the face of all the craziness of life are all found here in God's Word. I will tell you that I have been guilty of telling people who are stressed, telling people who you can just see the anxiety on their face to Remain calm. Remain calm. Stay calm. As if they're choosing not to remain calm and choosing to be stressed out. That would be like me telling Levi when he cries, tell me what you want. Verbalize it to me without a cry. Well, for those of you that know Levi, he's only seven months old. He's not talking yet. But when we tell people to remain calm, we're almost insisting that They could remain calm, but they're choosing to be stressed out instead. No one prefers to be stressed. No one prefers to be anxious and just overwhelmed over remaining calm. No one enjoys being stressed. No one gets excited about losing sleep at night, about getting gray hair, about losing that gray hair, having panic attacks, or worse, heart attacks, stress, anxiety, And worry are not things that we set out to add to our lives. We don't wake up in the morning and think, you know what? What I've been missing today is a lot of stress. What I've been missing today is a lot of, you know, anxiety, a lot of feelings of being overwhelmed. I'm gonna set out today to add some of the stress to my life because my life has been too calm. No one has this thought in the morning. We all seek to avoid such such times of stress and anxiety is at all costs some of us though are more prone to worry and distress than others but regardless of who you are and how you're affected by the craziness of life we're all affected by it to some degree unfortunately the bible has much to say about how we can remain calm in the midst of all the craziness we read of god in we read of god rather in psalm 107 verse 29 It says, He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. The disciples, when they were with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, they witnessed the incredible power of Christ, where he calmed the seas and calmed the storm there on one crazy night. And they said of him in Luke 8, 25, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. He brought calmness and peace to a horrifying storm. We read in Psalm 131 and verse number two, surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. We also see in Isaiah 7 verse 4, it says, take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. Now the idea behind each of these verses, and there's so many more in scripture, but the idea behind these verses is to be calm. To remain calm. Now, if I asked you to define what it means to be calm, most of us would probably just start by describing what being calm is not. Remi- remaining calm is not being agitated. Remaining calm is not being fearful. Remaining calm is not worrying. Remaining calm is not panicking. Calm is something that you can see in someone, but it's often hard to explain it in words if you did a, a side-by-side comparison between a person who is calm and a person who is not, the visible test would be very easy for us to identify the calm person as opposed to the person who is not calm. The one who is calm is usually more relaxed, generally is more comfortable, while the one who is not has a look of concern on his face, is restless, constantly fidgeting, probably doing something with their hands, and just can't sit still in general. Now what I found is that calmness it requires problems in order for us to identify it. When the storms of life are raging, are you able to remain calm? Now let me go the other way with some of these questions. When trouble arises, are you panicked? When things don't go according to your plan, do you begin to lose your mind? When problems begin to mount, do you get stressed? If you answered yes to any of those questions, or all of them, pay close attention. My purpose here this evening is to show you biblically what we should be doing during the stressful times of life. The best example we have in everything with regards to our lives and all things is to follow after what Christ has done. And in John 14, verse number 1, Jesus starts off by saying these words— Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus spoke these words because he was sincerely wanting his disciples to remain calm. He knew that their hearts were troubled just as he knows our hearts today are troubled. Each of us may have a different level of tolerance with regards to the problems that we face and and how much we can face. But each of us eventually reaches a point where we begin to worry, where we begin to stress, where we get anxious, where we begin to lose heart. And some people get there right away. Others, it takes a whole lot to pile on their lot before anxiety and stress really kick in. Either way, the Lord has encouraged all of us to not let our hearts get troubled when those problems seem to mount. Some people think that the Christian life should be a problem-free life. Wouldn't that be a great life to sign on to? Problem-free get saved and never experience another problem for the rest of your life, people would be flocking to Christianity if that was true. I hate to discourage anyone, but the truth is that once you trust in Christ, you're most likely going to add even more problems to your life than what you had before. Nowhere in Scripture do we read about the Christian life not coming with problems. Jesus warned us that troubles would accompany our journey through life and that the path of obedience to him would also add persecution from the world. But Jesus also said this in John 16 and verse number 33. He said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus dealt with his fair share of troubles during his life and ministry. In John 11 and verse number 33, we see Jesus in a particular difficult situation. It says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the Spirit. And the Bible says he was troubled. This was at the death of his dear friend Lazarus. The very next chapter, as he felt the shadow of the cross, getting closer and closer and heavier and heavier. We read about Jesus saying in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Now, as Jesus spoke there, he's feeling the weight of the cross getting heavier with each passing moment. There in John chapter 12, he is not that far. This is his last week before going to the cross. He knows that this is what he came to earth to do, but he's still human as much as he is God. And he was troubled in his spirit, troubled with the weight of what he was about to take on. When Jesus spoke of being betrayed in the very next chapter, in John chapter 13, he said this in John 13, verse 21, that when Jesus had thus said, that he was troubled in spirit. He was troubled in spirit. In every way, Christ knows what you and I are going through in this life. Hebrews 4.15 reassures us. It says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Everything that you'll ever face in life, every circumstance that you'll ever come up with, every instance that is going to bring a problem or a circumstance that is unfavorable in your life, Christ knows what you're going through. He knows every struggle that you're going to face, He knows the concerns you have, and He can sympathize with all of your weaknesses. The passage that we'll be looking at here this evening was originally spoken by Christ to His disciples hours before He would be arrested, hours before He would eventually be crucified. The disciples were growing increasingly anxious about their own life situations, how much their life was going to change once Christ left. And Jesus offered these words here in John chapter 14 as a source of comfort and encouragement to his, to his disciples who were visibly troubled during a very difficult time. And notice what we, read, what we read here. John 14, follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In all seasons of trouble and worry, this should be our go-to passage. Jesus didn't speak these words on a calm and a peaceful day as he and his disciples enjoyed a nice little picnic on the seashore of Galilee. He didn't speak these words from a place of protection, from a place of shelter where he was well fortified from any threat of danger. He spoke these words knowing that his enemies were actively planning to arrest him and eventually crucify him. He sat with his troubled disciples here in John 14 in the upper room as he prepared for the worst of humanity and separation from his Father in heaven. And the words that he spoke were, let not your heart be troubled. Now, I don't know about you, But just knowing the context really makes those words even more impactful for me personally. Jesus knew what would happen to him specifically, personally, in a short amount of time, and yet he spent those last few moments encouraging and comforting others. For the last three years, these men, these disciples, they had been following him, and now he's telling them that he is going to be leaving and they would no longer be able to follow, especially where he's going, at least not right away. You can imagine how upsetting this conversation must have been for the disciples to hear that the one who they had grown to depend upon every single day for the last three years is going to be leaving. That is why these words are truly encouraging, but not just for them, but for even us as well. Jesus asked them to put their trust in four things, four things here that... He promised would give them courage, would give them strength for their troubled hearts. These are the same things that will bring us peace and allow us to remain calm in the chaos and the craziness of life that we'll face. First, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Now, this isn't speaking about salvation. You you should trust in Christ for salvation. But even after you've trusted in Christ for salvation, trust in Christ from day to day. Listen to what he says in verse number one. Because the context here, he's speaking to believers. So this would be applicable to every believer. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust in Christ. When our children get afraid at night, they don't rely on a stuffed animal to bring them comfort. They cry out for Ruthie or for me, mostly Ruthie. Um, She's more compassionate and tender than I am. Mothers are a lot more nurturing than fathers. So that's just the way it goes. I'll come in and what's the problem? Go back to sleep. She'll come in and find out that there, you know, there's a monster outside their window or something crazy like that. And I tell them to suck it up and go back to sleep. Depending on the circumstances, there have been a few occasions where the children may be having a particularly difficult night that Ruthie would actually climb into bed with them, hold them close until they fell asleep. Her presence brings them such a calmness to their troubled hearts because they trust that mommy will keep them safe and make all things good. And you know, that's how it is with us in Christ. Jesus comforts us with who he is, with his presence. The Jews believed in one God. And we read it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The Jews had long been taught to love God and to love him exclusively. There is only one God. But now Jesus was telling them something that was actually quite shocking. Jesus wanted them to believe in him as much as they believed in God. Look again at what he says in verse number one. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. He says, you already do this. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe also in me. It was difficult for men to believe that Jesus had a divine nature. You can imagine how difficult it must have been for men to believe that Jesus is God. It was hard enough. As many miracles that Christ did, which again were undeniable that he is indeed God. So many people refused to believe it. He proved it on so many occasions that he's doing what only God can do, and yet people struggle to believe that he is God. And here he, Christ, is telling the disciples, you already believe in God. Believe in me. Trust in me from day to day as well as you're doing with God. It wasn't until after Christ's resurrection, though, that they fully began to understand everything that Jesus had previously told him about him truly being the Son of God. Jesus was asking these Jews to express banned their faith in their heavenly father to include the only begotten of the heavenly father. The one who is presently speaking to them, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. So first he says, trust in Christ. Second, trust in heaven. Trust in heaven. Notice what we read in verse number two. In my father's house are many mansions, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Trust in heaven. As the disciples were troubled about Jesus leaving, he was encouraging them that he was only going ahead of them to prepare a place for them. Heaven isn't specifically named here. But scripture has many different synonyms for heaven. And based on what the Bible tells us about heaven, We know that it is a truly beautiful place, a place beyond even what our greatest imaginations can ever come up with. Heaven is called, different things in the Bible, it's called the kingdom, it's called paradise. Here Jesus describes it as my father's house. The idea being that every single believer has a home specific for them in heaven. Every person, I don't care who you are, what your upbringing is, every single person longs for a home. It doesn't matter how humble a place it may be. We all long for a place that we can call home. There's a sense of security. There's a sense of comfort in our homes. And that is why when we're away, for sometimes any duration of time, we get homesick. Because even if we're on vacation and we're sleeping in a bed that's more comfortable than ours, we still enjoy the comforts of our own home. In a place that's Less fancy than when we're staying on vacation sometimes. Throughout the history of the world, we see this longing of every single person. And that is why when people come into substantial wealth, one of the first things they do is they either build their dream home or they purchase their dream home. Now, we all have this idea of what our dream home might look like. And unfortunately... Some people get so consumed with the idea of their dream home and never get any enjoyment out of what they currently have because it's always something else that they're dreaming about and they never actually get it. In North Carolina, there is the Biltmore House. Some of you may be familiar with this. The Biltmore House that was built by George Washington Vanderbilt II, who nearly depleted his entire fortune, and he had a massive fortune, to build this incredible, huge estate. He only was able to enjoy it for a couple years before he died. Listen to this. The house has over 250 rooms, 250 rooms, 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms. I can't even imagine how long it must take to clean that building. I can't even imagine what the electric bill or the heating bill must look like to heat that place. In California, there is the Hearst Castle. This was built by William Randolph Hearst. The man actually died of a heart attack before the house was completed. The Hearst Castle has only 165 rooms. It sits on a measly 127 acres of gardens, various terraces, of pools, and different walkways. Nothing compared to what we have today. No, I'm kidding, of course. Massive. But in both cases, tourists enjoy them more than the owners ever got to enjoy them. These modern day mansions that's a mansion. 250 rooms, 165 rooms, these are mansions. These modern-day mansions, compared to the heavenly mansion that Christ is preparing for us, look like run-down tool sheds. We all live here on earth and in houses of different shapes and sizes. Some of us rent, some of us own, some of us live rent-free. Either way, we must remember that it is not the house that makes the home. A true home is made of love, is made of relationships, is made of peace. Heaven may be filled with many mansions, but no architecture, no engineering, no crown molding, no granite countertops, no stainless steel appliances, no in-ground pool is going to be what makes our heavenly mansion special to us. I have no idea if any of those things are going to be present. What makes our heavenly home precious and special is the presence of the Lord. That is what makes our heavenly home. I may not know... What you're presently going through. You may not know how you, how all the, the present issues that you're dealing with are going to be resolved, what the outcomes are going, are going to be, but rest assured knowing that God has it all figured out. God will use the circumstances in your life not to stress you, but to stretch you so that you grow in maturity, that you understand that your citizenship rests not in this world where all the problems always exist, But your true home rests in the mansion that is awaiting you in heaven because of your faith in Christ. Heaven is real. Heaven is real and it is the eternal destination of every single believer. And Christ has gone ahead to prepare a place that is specific for each believer. That should bring every one of us comfort. I don't care what you're going through. We may not be in heaven yet, but it has power for us right now. The reality of heaven, it extends hope to every single person here on earth. The reality of heaven helps focus our goals and focus our aspirations. The reality of heaven brings comfort to our hearts, even when we lose the loved one. And we think of when we shall one day be received into heaven, we realize that there is nothing insignificant about any of us. We are children of God's kingdom. We are bound for heaven. Heaven is real. And it is the eternal home for all who believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. Trust in heaven. Third, trust in Christ's promise. Trust in Christ's promise. Look at verse number three here in John chapter 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Trust in Christ's promise. One of the reasons the Bible is so awesome is its many promises. It is filled with promises for those who trust in Christ. If you're a believer, why wouldn't you want to read God's word and learn more about what God has promised you? There's so much comfort for the believer who spends time reading God's word and the many promises that are there for us, reassuring ourselves that God is in control of everything that we're ever going to go through in life. Our comfort comes from knowing that Christ will one day return to take us to our home in heaven, away from all the troubles, away from all the struggles of this life. This is no new information. I realize this. I'm sure you've all heard this before. And yet, this is one of the most profound statements in all of human history. Our lives would be drastically different if we would only learn to fully embrace the truth that the God of the universe desires to spend eternity with each and every one of us. Can you think about that? He's preparing a place in heaven so that we can fellowship with him forever. He wants that. And this is what Christ is telling us here in verse number three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's not just, I'm going to set you up in this glorious place and then leave you there to be on your own. He says, where I am, there you may be also because I want to spend eternity with you, he's saying. What an awesome promise that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus reaffirms this promise just a few chapters later in his intercessory prayer in John chapter 17 and verse number 24. Jesus said, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. We need these promises as we navigate the uncharted waters of life. We still may get sick, we still might have financial struggles, we still might have relationship issues, we might have any number of problems that we face, but rest assured that Christ has already won the war. There is endless hope, endless hope in trusting a future that Jesus has guaranteed, even though there are still going to be daily struggles. By no means am I trying to minimalize or trivialize any of the problems that you may be dealing with. But we need to fully grasp that God has solutions to all the problems that we're going to face. Jesus meant it when he said there in John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. And he didn't just mean it for the disciples there in their upper room that night. He meant it for all believers of all ages. We don't have to let anxiety and stress get the best of us. But we cannot overcome anxiety with a pessimistic attitude about our problems. When we're trusting in the promises of Christ from day to day, we will have a positive outlook when those problems arise, and they will. Jesus told us to believe in him. Our only bond to the future he has promised us is our faith. Our decision to believe in Him. When we're trusting in Christ's promises every day, we're declaring that Christ has already guaranteed victory for us over all the problems in the world before they even present themselves. This doesn't mean that we're never going to have problems, but that problems don't have to bring us down. Our growth over the years will help us have the proper perspective. I have only been pastoring for a little over 11 years, but I can tell you that God has helped me already view problems in a different perspective, a different light. There are some things that happened to me today, not today today, but today, that 10 years ago would have had me convinced that I misunderstood God's call in my life. In a short amount of time, God has shown me how many great things God can do in some of the most worst and troubling circumstances. I cannot tell you the number of times that God has proved himself to me faithful and trustworthy and has given me never a reason to ever doubt that he is fully in control. Trust in Christ's promises. And then fourth, the last point, trust God's plan. Trust God's plan. Look at verses 5 and 6 here in John 14. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Trust God's plan. Jesus has a plan for every single believer to trust in. If Jesus had to leave... Thomas here is asking, Jesus, give us the GPS coordinates. He wanted a forwarding address. Where are you going? We want to know. The answer that Jesus gave was not exactly what Thomas expected. Jesus looked at him and said, Thomas, I am the GPS. That's what he said. I'm the GPS. I remember when I was down at college one day, and it was a Saturday afternoon. I dropped off a few of my friends at a nearby camp. They were going to spend the day, I was going to do, I was going to do some studying. so I dropped them off, was going to pick them up in a few hours. As I was on my way back, I took a wrong turn. I'd never been out there before. A friend of mine who I was driving, he was giving me directions on the way out. I thought I had it all figured out that I'd just do everything in reverse. Somehow, somewhere along the way, I took a wrong turn. Had no clue where I was. Completely lost. Nothing looked familiar. Everything looked the same. No matter what turn I, I made, I had no clue where I was. So I finally decided, and it took a while for me to do this because men never stop and ask for directions. So I was bound and determined that I was gonna figure out my way home on my own. Didn't happen. So I finally stopped, and honestly, I was running out of gas, so I had to stop anyways. Uh, but I stopped at the gas station and asked for directions. And I remember the gas station attendant giving me directions, and it, it might as well, he might as well have been speaking a foreign language. Uh, this, the stuff he was telling me to do, it was the most ridiculous most ridiculous thing. He was telling me where to turn, not by, uh, not by street names, but by landmarks. And I'm thinking, I have no idea where I am, guy. You know, give me something more down to earth. Speak English to me. But I, of course I stood there. I wasn't going to be rude. Okay, sounds good. I'll figure it out. Again, man thing. I'm going to figure it out on my own. I don't know what he's saying. I'll find my way back. I was all gassed up, ready to go. What I ended up finding out was I was only a couple blocks away from my school. It took me about an hour to get back, though. I was trying to follow all the directions, but they were nearly impossible to follow. What Jesus is doing here in verse number six, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What Jesus is doing here is not giving us directions. He's telling us he is the directions. But there is so much more to what Jesus is saying here. He's not only the directions to heaven or the way to heaven, but he's the only way to heaven, he says. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unfortunately, I read some recent polls. Recent polls which show that a majority of American Christians... 52% to be exact, believe that there are non-Christian religions that provide an alternate way to heaven. 47% of American Christians said they believe that many religions, many religions, can lead a person to heaven. In other words, more than half of so-called American Christians believe that Jesus is not the exclusive way to heaven. My question is, What part of John 14, verse 6, don't you understand? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, that's not gray to me. That's pretty rock solid. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The evidence for Christ being the only way to heaven is absolutely, not just overwhelming, but absolutely convincing. Matthew 7, verse 13, in case John 14, 6 wasn't enough, Matthew 7, verse 13 states, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat." Jesus said in John 8, 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Pretty cut and dry. Believe in Christ or you're going to die in your sins. We read in Acts 4, verse 12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Again, not gray, black and white. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then if that's not good enough, look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So even if John 14, verse 6 wasn't clear enough, and I've just hand-picked three or four other verses, which the Bible is full of verses that show Christ is the only way. But even if John 14, 6 wasn't enough, there are so many other verses that are crystal clear that Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you think that that is narrow-minded, you know what? You're absolutely right. If you think that it is intolerant and exclusive, once again, you're right. God makes it crystal clear that the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no back door. There's no finding favor in God's sight through works or any other means. You're not getting to the Father except through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what other religions you believe in. You're not getting to the Father other than through Jesus Christ. In Proverbs, Proverbs 14, verse 12, it states, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Many people are trusting in what seems right rather than trusting in what is right. As narrow-minded and as exclusive as God's way to heaven is, you know what the good news is? That God has made it so easy. He's made it so easy. He didn't say, this is the only way. Good luck getting there because it's never going to happen because what you're going to need to do is all these things in order for you to get to heaven and that's the only way. The Bible tells us, first of all, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He makes it so easy that He doesn't require any work of our own. He doesn't require any prerequisites. He doesn't require any achievements. All it is is a simple faith in Jesus Christ who has done all the work. God wants us to receive His free gift of grace and salvation so that He can write our names down in the Lamb's book of life, knowing that your future in heaven is guaranteed is reason for eternal comfort and peace. Even if in this life here on earth, you're going to face trials and tribulations and problems of all kind. Mark Twain once said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. That doesn't have to be true. We don't have to let troubles, problems consume us. Let's keep our eyes on the master of earth and skies and trust that he is always in control. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the way, the truth, and the life, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us some instructions on how to remain calm in the craziness of life. Lord, and we know that certainly from our perspective, things can get crazy. Lord, it seems that often. When problems come, they come in bunches. But Lord, help us to not be consumed by the whirlwind of problems, but to recognize that, Lord, you are still in control, that even in the craziness of life, you have a plan, you have a purpose, Lord, to mature us, to strengthen us as we continue to remain fixed on you and on your word. Lord, I pray that we would do these things. I pray that you would be the one constant in our life, and that as much as everything else around us seems to be falling apart, that our faith in you would never waver. Lord, I pray that we would learn to go through life with confidence, not with stress and anxiety and worry, but with the confidence knowing that you are the master of the earth and skies and all things, and that you are always in control. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.